It's a question that's been asked as long as cars have been going around racetracks. How fast is too fast? Is there a speed that is too dangerous? And how safe should race cars be in the first place? One well-known NASCAR driver offered this opinion in 2000. Quote, if you're not a race driver, stay the hell home. Don't come here and grumble about going too fast. Get the hell out of the race car if you've got feathers on your legs or butt. Put a kerosene rag around your ankles so the ants won't climb up and eat that candy ass. Parts of that quote have been put on t-shirts, coffee mugs, and internet memes for years. It came from one of the sport's most famous and powerful drivers. The quote is celebrated in a way that it likely wouldn't be if more people knew the actual history of why it was said. Today on Stagger, we'll tell you the story of the dangerous situation that prompted one of the most famous quotes in NASCAR. And in part one of a two-part podcast, we'll look at how one of the most dangerous sports in the world finally got safer. Turns of blues coming into the front stretch. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. But, oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger. I'm J.D. Smith, and along with my brother Derek Smith, we explore motorsports heroes, legends, and myths every week on this podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss a new episode if you want to learn more about motorsports history. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different. It is the first of a two-part series about NASCAR safety and car design. Also, this is going to be one of the few episodes we do where we don't have an interview. It took longer than we thought to kind of lay this whole story out, and we didn't want to put an interview at the end of that to make it even longer. Our goal for this podcast is to hopefully get you in and out in under an hour and hopefully make you smarter about the world of motorsports. Next week, though, we think we've got some pretty good guests lined up, so stay tuned for that. Also on next week's episode, we're going to talk about the car of tomorrow, a design which was derided by a lot of NASCAR fans, but it also had some key safety innovations. Anyway, we'll get into more of that next week. This week, we're going to talk about the background, why NASCAR even considered designing the car of tomorrow, and what was the renewed interest in safety. Some of it, believe it or not, had to do with a pretty boring race at New Hampshire. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, Derek, um, pretty tough question for you. How do you deal with death? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a heavy question. Yeah, um, not yeah. not 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 well. No, I, mean, I think you know what? That's right. I I I don't deal with it well either. I don't think we're meant to deal with it well, for what it's worth. No, but yeah, I it is a heavy question, and I apologize for springing that on you. But the reality is, when we do a racing history podcast, I have found that we're going to talk about a lot of death. Yeah. Like I was thinking, we're more like a history podcast, but as I started doing this, I think like the murder podcasts you know how they kind of true crime true crime podcasts like how they're just kind of like there's a lot of death around that and unfortunately we can't get away from it in the world of racing um Mm -hmm. a lot of racing history involves sadly a lot of death but this is the question nascar had to answer in the year 2000 because they had some horrible things happen that year and i think it's because of that year that we have seen now a safety record in NASCAR that's been pretty good. Obviously, we know what happened in 2001 with Dale Earnhardt Sr. But since then, there has not been a death in the three major national series. I think these questions that they had to answer in the year 2000 and how they responded to it is part of how they started getting on the right path here. 
you had two tragedies happen, sadly, in the span of two months' time. There's never been more focus on NASCAR than what there was in the year 2000. Adam Petty died at New Hampshire on May 12th of 2000. This was in practice for the Bush 200. He was running in the, what we now call, obviously, the Xfinity Series, the Nationwide Series, was what it was previously known as, the Bush Series back then. His throttle stuck open as he was heading into turn three, so he couldn't let off the, he let off the gas, didn't matter, the engine kept accelerating, and he hit the wall at a pretty high rate of speed. They, this was a practice. They don't know exactly how fast he was going, but obviously well over 130 miles an hour, presumably. Sadly, he died of a basilar or basilar skull fracture. He was 19 years old. Hmm. Kenny Irwin Jr., another name that's very familiar to longtime NASCAR fans, he died at New Hampshire on July 7th, 2000, in practice for the thatlook.com 300, which I don't know what thatlook.com is anymore, but um, this, is the, this is the New Hampshire. Now it's called the whatever Foxwood Casinos 301 or something. Like it's, it's the first New Hampshire race. They used to have two. Now they just have one. But his throttle stuck open heading into turn three. He hit the wall at a high rate of speed, presumably over 130 miles an hour, and he died of a basilar skull fracture. So, like I said, May 12th, July 7th, less than two months apart, two guys have died in two practice sessions for NASCAR races. NASCAR's got a huge problem on their hands at this point. Obviously, you've got two people dead because of just tragic circumstances. The same type of thing happened to both cars. The throttle got stuck open. Let's talk about those two drivers real quick. What do you remember of Kenny Irwin Jr.? Do you remember much about him? I remember, didn't he drive the Irwin Tools car? Am I? No, I'm blanking on that. That's okay. That was just, yeah, that was, well, that was Kurt Busch. Oh, yeah, Kurt Busch did the, drive the 97, Irwin Tools yeah. car, yeah. He drove the Haviland car for a little the bit. Haviland, that's right, the 28, yeah. yeah he drove that Gosh, for a while. They don't need to put a 28 and a Haviland on any more cars. Yeah, like, no that's kidding. Two, that's two that have passed away with that scheme. Well, and, and don't forget, Ernie Irvin, I want to say, was running that scheme when he had his wreck at Michigan. And Ernie Irvin recovered from his injuries, but for people who don't know that story, he also had a basilar skull fracture. He just survived that injury. Yeah, that's, that's, not, the great, that's not the best number combination, got to be honest, right? Kenny Irwin Jr., for those who don't know, he was Tony Stewart's biggest rival in USAC when those two would run any USAC races which Tony Stewart came up through those ranks before he got to IndyCar and then obviously transitioned over to NASCAR. USAC was the thing to do. So Kenny Irwin Jr., Indianapolis kid, born and bred. Everyone knew this guy was going places, thought of as a true up-and-comer. And Adam Petty, who was much younger, he was 19 years old at the time of his death. He was the grandson of Richard Petty, son of Kyle Petty, great-grandson of Lee Petty. He is believed to be the first-ever fourth generation athlete in American sports history. What do you remember about Adam Petty? I remember the Spree car, uh, the 45 with like the, it was green, purple, yellow. From all accounts of people that were following him and covering his young career, he was winning a lot. You know, Lee won a lot. Richard had won a lot. Kyle won a few times. Kyle won a lot in the Bush series, similar in the, series, in the yeah. Grand National series, and then right got up and had some early success in the Cup series, but never quite got to the level of his dad or his granddad. Obviously, pretty right. tough to do when you're following <laughs> two guys of that level. But it was believed that Adam Petty was going to get up there and be a possible champion. Like this was the yeah. early hopes for. Yeah. I mean, again, very young in his career, 
He had barely just started running Cup Series, but it was thought he was going to be able to do some pretty good things. I mean, living up to hype, like expectations that he was going to meet was going to be like Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Sr., only with his his grandpa. Yeah, And he, he right. would spend a lot of time with Richard in the garage, and they were almost inseparable a lot of time. That's what I think hit them hardest is that, I mean, they had set everything up. Petty Enterprises yes. was built for Adam Petty. You had the 42, you had the 43, the 42 retired when Lee Petty obviously retired. Then you had the 44 of Kyle Petty. Right there was the 45, and this yeah. is going to be the legacy. This was going to be the flagship team of the sport. But yeah, Adam Petty was going to bring Petty Enterprises back to prominence, and he was taken. Obviously, uh, that hit that family really hard. Kyle Petty's first year in the Cup Series was Dale Earnhardt's rookie year. So when you put it in that perspective, and you think about what Dale Earnhardt Jr. was doing in the year 2000, 1999, 2001, like Dale Earnhardt Jr. was what they were thinking Adam Petty was eventually going to become too, you know? Oh yeah. The, he's the, the face of the sport. Adam Petty could have been another pillar like that. It could have been on some battles between Earnhardt's and Petty's back on the racetrack again. Mm-hmm. You know, that was yeah. kind of the, the hope here, but the, those two guys, Dale Earnhardt and Kyle Petty, they had sons they had high hopes for. And obviously Dale Earnhardt's career was a lot different than Kyle Petty's career, but in a weird way, Kyle Petty was like Dale Earnhardt Jr. From the growing up with a dad with all these expectations, and then, you know, you've got all those expectations placed on you. Kyle Petty had that in the late 70s, early 80s, early 90s. Like, that was his ballpark where he was. Then he had a son who was going to go through that. It's just weird to think. Like, I don't think of Kyle Petty and Dale Earnhardt being the same age, but they were at similar stages in life in this point. Um, mm-hmm. Kyle Petty's career was winding down more than Dale's was at that point, but you know, both of them were now looking to the future to their sons, and what mm-hmm. would their sons do in the sport? And Adam Petty obviously was taken far too soon. NASCAR has lost two bright young stars in the span of two months. They have to decide what they're going to do because they had another race at New Hampshire. That race was in September. Like I said, Kenny Irwin's death occurred in July. So they had to figure out, how are we going to run this race at New Hampshire? Because two deaths in two weekends, we cannot have a third person die at this track. Before we go a lot further, for people who don't know New Hampshire, Derek, you're you're pretty familiar with NASCAR and all that. New Hampshire, it's a mile-long track. It's definitely not a track, I think, that if you said, boy, a lot of people are going to die at a racetrack in one year, where would that be? You wouldn't think New Hampshire would be the one that would make the list, right? Right. No, it would be way down that list. And I would have probably put every track that where you go 200 miles an hour or more would be the top of the list. Maybe even some road courses. I mean, New Hampshire would be down there with like Bristol and Martinsville in theory. Sure. You wouldn't think of it being that dangerous, but the thing that new hampshire has it it is very flat it's not a high banks racetrack you know talladega has 36 degree banking uh the turns at new hampshire are banked at seven degrees it's high speed for the size that it is it's a mile long track talladega is over two and a half miles long daytona's two and a half miles long indianapolis two and a half miles long so it's a smaller track than all those places but it allowed for very long straightaways and the cars were carrying a lot of speed and if you have a car getting stuck wide open there's not a banking that kind of can slow down the car. 
mm-hmm. and turn the car, mm-hmm. it was just like kind of a straight shot right into the wall. So that's something NASCAR hadn't really anticipated. Nobody would. Right. So they had to decide what to do for this third race. They had a few options as they saw it. They, one, could just cancel the race, which that was not going to happen. They raced, by the way, both weekends when these two men died. They did complete the races that following day. Mm. So they weren't going to cancel this race. And that's something that NASCAR's done in it, pretty much its entirety. Like, I think back to, was it J.D. McDuffie at Watkins Glen? Yep, sure. Yeah, he, the, the whole reason they have a ch- chicane there now is because his throttle stuck. Mm-hmm. And he went off flying into that that right-hander turn. He just kept going straight down that long backstretch. And it killed him. And I remember seeing like a, a picture of the, a video of the crew just consoling each other and, and gathering up their tools and, and, yeah. and, you know, going back to the garage in tears. And it was like, you know, he passed away and gave his age. They went quiet and did the thing, the, the years on the in memoriam thing. And then cut to commercial and they come back. All right, now on lap 35 of the uh, Watkins Glen. Blah, 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 and it's like, yeah, they, 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 right they just kept going. It. Yeah, it's, it's such died. a... died. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a thing. foreign concept here. Like, it is nowadays, because I don't know what nowadays. would... I wouldn't know what would happen now. And obviously the last time we saw it in a high-profile situation, like with Dale Earnhardt, as far as with NASCAR, that was the last lap of a race. So, right. I mean, they did go on the next weekend and race, but... You know, they, I, I don't know what would have happened to that Daytona 500 if, if that had happened to Dale Earnhardt halfway through the race. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, Dale Earnhardt was the one that changed this all. Yeah, it, it changed all it of all. racing. Yeah. I mean, um, well, and, and he's he's a big part of this story, man, um, as we'll find yeah. out, because like I said, the options for them were not to go racing at all, to race the exact same way as they had been and not change anything and just say, well, it's racing. Deal with it. You know, it's dangerous. Things can happen. Or the third option was they could have safer racing. And so NASCAR said, we need to make the racing safer. So then they had a new set of choices that they had to figure out. They had options for them. They could mandate what's called a Hans device. It is basically a way that they hook your helmet to your shoulders, more or less, with a plastic brace that then is held in place by your shoulder harnesses for your seatbelts. That would prevent the the whiplash type of injury that caused the deaths of Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin upon impact. It is believed. The other options they had were closed helmets. They, they thought of that as a thing too. They could mandate everybody have a closed face helmet. A lot of drivers did not wear those or some drivers did not wear those. Some did some did. There was a kill switch for the engine in the cars for the driver. Kill switch just would cut the engine off. So if your throttle stuck and you could, quickly reach over on your steering wheel and flip this little switch, just shut your engine off. You could slam on the brakes. It just would ensure your car wouldn't keep accelerating into the wall. It would at least have, it would be neutral. And then you could try to slow it down. There were also options for softer walls. Remember when Jimmy Johnson flew off the track at Watkins Glen yeah. and flew into those giant styrofoam barriers with and the like, tires? Boom. Yeah. And it exploded and it looked like, oh my gosh, this guy's not going to make it. And he got out, stood on top of the roof and just looked like he'd seen a ghost. He almost was one. I mean, it was it was a was. violent impact. Well, those are the types of blocks and tires that they were looking at for New Hampshire in 2000 because the safer barrier, steel and foam barrier that they've put together that Indianapolis pioneered, IndyCar used that first and then other series quickly adopted it too. Those walls definitely would help with impact. That was not 
ready for use until 2002. They installed it in Indianapolis in the off-season before the 2002 Indy 500. So that was the first time it was used. It was not quite ready at this point. The other option they had was to slow down the cars. And so as they're looking at what to do at New Hampshire, they looked at some of these different options, and here's what they ended up with. They couldn't do the Hans device because there were a lot of big-name drivers, Dale Earnhardt Chief among them, but also Mark Martin, Ward Burton, who said, I, will not, I don't want to wear a Hans device. Don't want to wear it. They said it restricted their movement. They felt it was Wait, giving into Ward Burton fear. said that? Ward Burton, yeah. Ward really? Burton. Well, he said the initial one, it hurt quite a bit. The first ones, he said, didn't have a ton of padding on them, and he said it felt uh, like it was going to snap my collarbone if I got into an wait, accident. no, no. It, he said, it felt like it was going to snap my collarbone into like a that, turkey wishbone. <laughs> I, Go listen to Ward Burton talk sometime. If you've never heard the man, he has got the most interesting accent I, in the world. I, I want him to be, he will be the number one audible reader if he just did it. <laughs> yeah. So there was another weird thing about the Hans device. A lot of drivers felt like this and other safety measures were giving into fear. More or less, it was this idea of, or race car drivers, what are we supposed to do? It's going to be dangerous. That's why we do this. We wouldn't get in these cars if we were afraid of dying. Like, I'm not afraid of it, and I'm not going to do anything to change that fear. I'm not going to give into that fear and start changing everything, because then eventually I'll be wrapped up in bubble wrap, and I won't be able to drive. As it stood, NASCAR did not mandate a Hans device until October of 2001. That was not going to happen for this New Hampshire race. They were not there yet. The kill switches, like, like I said, they did install those in the car, but that only helped if your throttle stuck open. It didn't help if you just had a flat tire and shot up into the wall, you know, right. or, or various other things. So they were still trying to figure that out. And, and too, I mean, you're, you have to see that your throttle sticking when well, right. entering, ent, entering your, into one or three. Your entry point is so late when so you're, you're going to have, yeah, you're going to be so late, but it, I mean, it might drop it off by 20 miles an hour, but if that. I mean, if yeah, that, it, I mean, it was you're, you're it still... was seen as a last ditch effort just to try to keep you from dying. It, it may not yeah. help keep you from getting a severe injury, but it might keep you from dying. That was I mean, have you, any of you thought. ever hydroplaned? Oh, if yeah. You've hydro- sure. If you've hydroplaned at a high speed, you're along for the ride. So yeah, you, can you, if you could you hit kill, you, if you, you could turn your engine. car off all that. It would still you're just shooting across whatever you're on right. until, until you get grip again. again. So yeah. when you're going in a thing where you have you're hanging at such a tight turn to go left and you don't turn because your tire's flat and it won't allow it or your engine your throttle stuck it would have it would be tough it would be a very difficult thing for it to get for that to work and again you'd have to see it instantly know exactly what the problem was kill your engine and then jam on the brakes and hope that was it yeah so it wasn't that wasn't a good enough solution the kill switch wasn't going to be enough so they decided let's look at the soft foam walls these giant i mean we're talking styrofoam that is the size of like a room in your house. Like they're just gigantic blocks of foam. They wanted to do that in some tires and a combination to try to create a barrier. New Hampshire, the runoff is so big before you actually hit the wall. You aren't going to have guys running up there anyway. It's not like they would come out close to the wall. So they could put them in spots where they thought if there's going to be an impact zone, here's where it would be. The problem was, you know, they're trying to figure this out on the fly in the middle of the, of the year. The stories that are told about this, some of the guys in NASCAR who worked at this time said they, they literally were taking cars, like street cars out, blocking the steering, holding the back end up on a forklift, and then they put a cinder block or something on the gas pedal until it accelerated to as fast as it could go. They would then drop the wheels down on the ground and just let it go straight into the wall and see what happened. 
And the problem was, go figure, because this wasn't a test track. This wasn't, they were doing this at New Hampshire. I mean, they were literally putting cars on the track and trying to get them to wreck. And of course, you know, they couldn't control for like, oh, this car was slightly off by a millimeter and it didn't go the right way. And it, yeah, the alignments. <laughs> yeah. So like all these things they couldn't really control for. So they, they found that they couldn't really test these foam barriers to make sure they would work or not. It took the safer barrier people. They started developing that in 1998. And like I said, it wasn't ready until 2002. So just think mm-hmm. about how much, you know, NASCAR is trying to develop something in-house. They were very protective at the time. They didn't let a lot of outsiders come in and figure out how to help NASCAR. So they're trying to figure this out by themselves with limited resources in the early 2000s. They can't just run a simulation. You know what I mean? On 20 computers and just figure out what's going to happen. Right. So they couldn't really come up with a solution in that regard. So what was the only option left of all those options I gave? The only other option is to slow the cars down. And how do you think they slowed the cars down at New Hampshire, Derek? <laughs> they uh, probably went to an old trick in the uh, the uh, NASCAR R&D Tech Center, which is a restrictor plate, I'm guessing. Yep. Just hey, a brief, brief winner, little. Winner. <laughs> For NASCAR fans, everybody knows that term restrictor plates if you're like a super diehard nascar fan but for those who don't understand what we're talking about these engines were small block v8s they have a carburetor that takes in the air and mixes it with the fuel on the top of the engine and those carburetors have an intake port that opens up to a certain width well if you limit the amount of air that can flow through there with a restrictor plate it's literally a square plate with four little holes in it And you can change the diameter of the holes to allow a different amount of air in, depending on the application. But when you do that, it just cuts off the horsepower. So you can tune the engine, you can do all these crazy technical tricks with camshafts and all the bore and everything else. You can do everything you want to these engines. They're not going to produce more than a certain baseline of power because they've got this restricted airflow. That's what that's what they used at Daytona and Talladega. At this point, they'd been using them for about 10 years at those tracks, and that seemed to work pretty well, limiting the speed. So they thought, let's give it a shot at a much smaller track. So we had a restrictor plate race, which is usually a Daytona Talladega thing, on a mile-long track that has less than 10 degrees of banking. It was super weird. Coming up next, we'll explain that weirdness right here on Stagger. Welcome back to Stagger. A reminder that you can always follow us on Twitter at Stagger Podcast. It's also the same handle on Instagram. Now back to the weirdness of New Hampshire in the year 2000. At this time, NASCAR decides about a week, 10 days before that race at New Hampshire, they say, here's our solution. Put a restrictor plate. We're going, it's a restrictor plate track. Put your restrictor plate engines in. Jeez. <laughs> So imagine like, wait, wait, if this was, I know this was in the fall, but if this was April, you'd have to be thinking, okay, NASCAR, this is a good April fool's joke, but what are the engine specs again for this race? Yeah. There's no (laughs) way we're doing that. Right. They, they were, they were beside themselves. A lot of drivers were not happy with this. Now at this time, there were two schools of thought from the drivers. The first one is that NASCAR should be doing stuff like this because they need to protect their drivers. On this side of the debate were guys like Jeff Burton. Jeff Burton, in 2000, was one of the best drivers in NASCAR. 
He was driving the 99 XI batteries car for Jack Roush, one of the best car owners at the time. He actually was a big proponent of safety to the point that he worked with a guy who made some of the seats, this guy, Brian Butler. They designed the head surround padding system that you see now in a lot of all racing series that are like stock car racing series, but especially in the NASCAR Cup series and the Xfinity series, the truck series. He helped design that with a guy mm-hmm. who makes these seats to try to cushion a driver during a crash. He was one of the first guys to wear a Hans device. So he was a notable advocate of NASCAR safety. In fact, I've got a quote for you from Jeff Burton after Jason Leffler died. Those who don't know, Jason Leffler was a great sprint car driver. He also raced in NASCAR, but sadly died in a crash in 2013. Now, he died in a sprint car crash, not in a NASCAR event. Right. So he was driving a different type of car, but he died in 2013. And here's what Jeff Burton said at that time, quote, One of the things that's infuriated me the last several years is we have some members of our community that have made the comment that racing has become too safe. These people are idiots. We accept the risk. It's part of what we do. But it doesn't have to be more dangerous than it has to be. People don't go watch this hoping someone is going to get hurt or be killed. They watch it because it's competitive and fun. That's where Jeff Burton was on this issue. When NASCAR started saying, what can we do to make the race safer at New Hampshire? He embraced it. He was a big fan of that idea, and he was advocating for drivers to adopt some of these changes on their own, even if NASCAR wasn't going to mandate them, because he wanted to see people be safe. Also, I should point out, Jeff Burton, for those who haven't put that together, is the brother of Ward Burton, the guy who was saying, I don't like some of these changes. I don't want to do that. Jeff Burton and Ward Burton are are very different guys. So you're telling me that brothers can have different opinions? That happens. <laughs> shocking. Wow. We've never shocking. we've never had that happen. I don't I wouldn't no, know anything about never. that. Never. I no. mean, we've always thought and seen eye to eye on every single every, thing. Every so. everything ever. The anomaly, the burdens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Must be something in the water. On the other side of this debate is uh guys like Dale Earnhardt Sr. in the year two thousand. Dale was still trying to keep his banjo Matthews designed seat, which looks something like what you would find in a minivan. It was not a wraparound seat. Actually, I don't know if in by 2000, he might have switched over to the seat, but he was one of the last guys who switched over to like a more protective seat. Prior to that, he was still just rocking the old school, you could have ripped it out of your mom's minivan type of seat that he used to use. And, and then he used to like modify the padding. So he put it in the places he felt like he needed it to be comfortable in the seat. Yes. But he'd remove everything else and be like, well, this is extra weight. I don't need this. There's a video, I think Fox or NBC had it, one of the specials that they usually run before Daytona, you just see him out there like taking black electric tape to this. Yeah, this this rattles, so I'm gonna make sure this is nice and tight so it won't rattle. I, I do this to all my seats, make sure I I get just to my specs. And he's like he's sitting on the ground fidgeting, and then he comes back and he's like, "Yeah, I need to I need to change this." And you just see this like late 90, 1990s thing of him working in a shop, just mm-hmm. making his seat. He no one else touched his seat. He did his own seat because he. Had to make sure it felt comfortable. Right. I mean, he was he he was very protective of the way his seat was. He had an open face helmet, and part of his logic there was, I already have one windshield. Why do I need a second one? And of course, he was not a proponent of the Hans device. He was famous for not liking that because he liked to turn his head and look. And when you have the Hans device on, your head just stays pretty much. It, that's one of its features is that your head stays kind of locked in place, so that when you have an accident, it doesn't cause of severe injury, but 
The downside of that is you can't turn around and look. Then again, if you have like a head protection all the way wrapping around the sides of your head, you're not going to be able to see anything anyway. So that's why they have spotters. That's why they have yeah. now. That's that's why they have giant rear view mirrors. But there's some limitations to it for sure. So a week before the race at New Hampshire, NASCAR is at Richmond. And they had announced this series of changes, including the restrictor plates. They had announced that in a technical bulletin. So there were still you know, other concerns about the NASCAR tour heading to New Hampshire. Dale Earnhardt at Richmond in the garage gathered reporters around his hauler and delivered a quote, Derek, that you may have heard before. If you're not a race car driver, stay the hell home. Don't come here and grumble about going too fast. Get the hell out of the race car if you've got feathers on your legs or butt. Put a kerosene rag around your ankles so the ants won't climb up and eat that candy ass. So that that quote is one of the most legendary quotes in all of NASCAR history from Dale Earnhardt. That is why it was delivered. He was basically drawing the battle lines and saying, if you're someone who believes in progress and safety, you're a candy ass. You know, the other side looked at the guys who were fearless and said, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm scared. I get in a race car. I know I can die. That's, I'm fine. Let me get out there and do it. I don't care. The other side was looking at those guys and saying, well, you're idiots. So it was the idiots versus the candy asses. Everybody was kind of on edge and picking sides. And where do they stand? I think it's worth pointing out here that in the year 2000, Dale Earnhardt was 48 <laughs> and Jeff Burton was 33. You know, so you kind of have that vibe too, right? I mean, these are definitely two generations of drivers. There's the Dale Earnhardt's that raced against some guys when he was coming up. He's racing against guys who raced when there weren't seatbelts, <laughs> you know, like Cale Yarborough's and AJ Foyt's and some of those guys that would have been in NASCAR around that same time. David Pearson, Richard Petty. I mean, these guys all raced with way less as far as protection. So Dale Earnhardt still remembers that. Now he's talking to a guy in Jeff Burton who's looking at this going, why don't we have 10 times more protection than we do? And he's saying, we do have way more protection. You should have seen what the old guys used to have. That's where I think some of this generational gap occurred. And it's not necessarily wrong either way. It's, it's you know, we know how it played out now with the benefit of hindsight. But at the time, I can understand how both parties would look at the other one and say, no, you're wrong. This is stupid. You're, you're doing it the wrong way. And I'm trying to save you from yourself. And also, it should be noted, many drivers at that time, they did not feel good about speaking out because the perception was, especially if you talked about safety, the thought is, well, then you're, are you going to give 100% or are you going to be scared when you've mm -hmm. got to make a pass on the last lap to win me the Daytona 500 and I'm your sponsor and I want to see my name in victory lane? Are you going to risk it all to get me to that extra spot or are you just going to kind of hang out and say, oh, second's good enough, you know? That was the concern is if you started talking. So Jeff Burton at this time, he's a fully established NASCAR driver. He's one of the best drivers in the garage. He can speak out on this, but there were other drivers who definitely did not feel comfortable doing so. So right. then we get to the week of New Hampshire. And there's one little bit of preparation here that happened that's very important to our story. Jeff Burton's team took a car to Milwaukee, which is also a mile oval, similar to New Hampshire. They tested that week before the race and did a lot of laps in that car with the restrictor plate on. And Jack Roush was so impressed, their car owner, that he actually had his guys working overtime back at the shop with all the data they were gathering to make some tweaks and rebuild the engine and make this special engine just for that purpose, just hmm. for this mile racetrack they were going to go to. And so they tweaked this engine right up until the end, and they actually didn't bring this engine until qualifying started. 
and put it in the car right before qualifying. That's back in the day when you could do that. Yes, Nowadays, you could change engines. You, have, you could do all you kinds of stuff. You have to show up with the engine. You run what you brung, but with yep. the new definition, you have one engine for the weekend, and if you have to go to a backup, you go to the back of the field. Oh, yeah. There were guys who used to blow engines in practice, and they'd put a new engine in for qualifying. They'd take that engine out, put a different engine in for the race. Those, this was during that time. And also, yep. this was a time where you could just go to a racetrack that they weren't running at in NASCAR and just go test. They don't do that so, really now as well. I mean, it's it, there's limited amounts of testing. There's limited amounts of time on the track. Those were everyone had those opportunities to do it. Yeah. Jeff Burton and Roush Racing, they decided to actually go do it. Yeah, and that might be a good discussion for another day because one of the teams even rented an old Pennsylvania Turnpike tunnel to do like a mile long drag, top out, kind of like a wind tunnel, but in a controlled environment. It was, and, uh, and yeah. that team still exists. <laughs> yeah, they do. I, I just didn't want to get off on another rabbit trail. Yeah, yeah, too yeah, deep. yeah. But yeah, we, I mean, we can like, at some point. That's well yeah, for those so, who don't know. That is actually Chip Ganassi is yeah. believed to be the one who owns a private. Basically, he owns a test tunnel in a mountain. It's an old tunnel system that they were using for the freeway. That one got discontinued. He bought it, sealed it up, and it's now believed to be a giant testing facility for uh, him and maybe other teams too. The NASCAR Winston Cup race, which is what this was, Sunday, September 17th, 2000 at New Hampshire International Speedway in Loudoun, New Hampshire, where they ran 300 laps. You want to know what the fuel window was for this race? What's that? Over 100 laps. Because, oh they, had the because they had the restrictor plates on. Yeah. They got super fuel mileage. So for a 300-lap race, they were most teams were planning on doing this race in two stops. Stopping at like lap 100, lap 200, you'll be good to go to the end. It was a very unique race. The speeds were about 10 to 12 miles an hour slower on each lap. So they were going slower. They were getting better fuel mileage. Unfortunately, the racing was pretty much a dud. So Bobby Labonte qualified on the pole. He was the points leader headed into the race. Jeff Burton was second. He also was uh, second in the points. So, so those two started on the front row. They dropped a green flag. Bobby Labonte doesn't even lead in turn one. Jeff Burton gets out ahead of him, gets clear in turn one. By turn two, he's five car lengths ahead. By the time they get back to the green flag, he is out solid, you know, six, seven car lengths, and he doesn't look back. And so he is just out by a good 10 to 12 car lengths pretty much the whole day. But he can't run away because he's got a restrictor plate on. So no one can really catch him, but he can't really get away either. So yeah. the top few guys, they're just all kind of bunched up and they're still following around. And there was a there was some passing in this race, but for the most part, the passing that was happening was when he started lapping cars, Jeff Burton. I will spoil this race for you and tell you that the amount of lead changes in this race was one, <laughs> and it was the one I just described to you. That was the only time the lead changed hands during the entire race, even through pit stops, because they were done under caution, uh, but Jeff Burton basically maintained the lead the entire time and won this race flag to flag. He, he led for 300 laps. Now, I will tell you, there was some drama that happened on the track that mirrored what was going on off the track. Do tell. Lap 194, Jeff Burton puts a 16th place Dale Earnhardt one lap down. Dale Earnhardt Sr. Caution came out on lap 200. And at this point, you could race back to the line. They didn't just freeze the field when the caution came out. They actually allowed cars to drive back. And so if you were getting lapped by the leader, sometimes the leader would just kind of let you go, let you get back on the 
tail end of the lead lap is what they would call it. Well, you get your lap back at the before the line there. Yeah. Yeah. If you get back. Yeah. Then you you go around to the back when the caution flag happens and you get to be at the tail end of the longest line. But you are on the lead lap. Um, well, if you go to YouTube and go watch this race, you go to about an hour, 36 minutes in. You can see this. Jeff Burton appears to let Jeremy Mayfield get back on the lead lap, but Dale Earnhardt could not get there. He was the next car in line, and Burton either didn't let him by or Dale Earnhardt wasn't close enough to catch him. But either way, Earnhardt was not happy with Jeff Burton. So he drove up next to him as they're driving around under caution, endured him, and left a big donut right on the inside of his door to show him, hey, man, you should have let me go too. Now, I don't know if that was motivated by everything that was going on off the track, but you'd have to think Dale Earnhardt has been talking about safety and how you're a candy ass. If you want all this progress and the guy who's like the face of the safety and progress candy ass movement is kicking everyone else's candy ass right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I wonder if Dale Earnhardt was a little bit pissed off just about his situation in general that day, or if there was more to it. Once he got a lap down, Dale Earnhardt was kind of stuck. A few laps later, this is actually lap 246, fourth caution of the day, Bill Elliott spun on the front stretch after he and Dale Earnhardt Jr. got together because Jr. was racing at this time. Elliott was actually, and I think this is cool, Bill Elliott was racing with a bad knee. He had hurt it working in his shop, dropped something on his leg or something that messed up his knee. All that weekend when he wasn't in the car, he was on crutches. But he got in the race car and was running again at this track where two guys had just died. And he's got a bad knee, and he's like, no, 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 I can get in the car and do that. I just need help getting out when I wreck. And so they pulled him out. He got on his crutches, and I think that was a cool little Bill Elliott story. Don't call him Awesome Bill for nothing. That's right. That's indicative of that time, too. A lot of drivers were not candy asses, as uh, Dale Earnhardt said. <laughs> well, and you know um, what? Guys like Jeff Burton aren't candy asses either. I mean, No. You know, Hell no. They're not getting in these cars. They're, they know what can, the deal can is. Can I just say that pretty much any guy or gal that straps in a race car is pretty much a badass and has some skill and talent. I'd even give that to Mike Harmon. I mean, he's he's a badass you don't want to mess with. He's a race car driver. He's a slow badass, but he's a badass. He's a slow badass, but he's a race car driver. <laughs> and he's probably not scared of much. That's right. You know, so, I mean, that's, I think, the thing we think we forget about this. It's all relative to the fact that, I mean, if, if all of a sudden you have to break from 80 down to 45 for like a slow spot by an exit, and you kind of freak out and you feel a vibration because maybe your rotors aren't 100% you know, where they should be. They're worn out a little bit. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I was kind of close. It's like you realize, wow, these guys are doing it at 160, 170, 180. Every lap. You know, like, every, every lap. lap. And they got to be perfect. And they got to hit their marks. Yeah, it's, it's a tough deal. That caution that came out for Bill Elliott, they restarted on lap 254. Dale Earnhardt was starting on the inside because this is also where the cars that were a lap down used to start right next to the cars that were the leaders. So the inside line would be all lap cars until they ran out of lap cars. And the outside line would be one, two, three, four, five, the actual position cars. So Dale Earnhardt is starting alongside of Jeff Burton after they've already had a couple run-ins on the track at this point and Earnhardt's pissed at him that he can't get around him. So they restart. Earnhardt gets ahead of Jeff Burton and Jeff Burton kind of was just going like, all right, man, let you go. You're the intimidator. You're going to be an idiot. You're going to try to hit me if I don't let you go by. So I let him go by. But Earnhardt's not going as fast as Jeff Burton is. And Bobby Labonte is right on Burton's tail at this point because he is getting Burton, is getting held up by Dale Earnhardt. Burton's like, well, I'm sorry, buddy, but I got to go around you. I got a race to win. 
So they go actually, Burton and Labonte go three wide with Dale Sr. You can go to about the two-hour mark to see this on the broadcast if you go look up the race on YouTube. And it's incredible. None of them wrecked heading into turn three where they were all three wide, but Jeff Burton made a hell of a move, yeah. stayed in front of Bobby Labonte, did not let him even get a half a car length ahead of him, just stayed in front. But now he's still stuck behind Dale Earnhardt, but he kept Bobby Labonte behind him. And eventually he got around Earnhardt the next lap as they were headed down the front stretch. And once he does that, Burton sticks his hand out and gave Dale Sr. a little how do you do, showing him the how... The new Hampshire not- hello. <laughs> That's a uh, willpower gave two of those to the tower one time That's right. at an IndyCar race. So it's the New Hampshire hello. New Hampshire hello. That's right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So so he he gave a little wave. Dale Senior was not happy with him. There was a little bit of that drama on the track. It was kind of a a bit of a feud they had going on there. Dale Earnhardt again uh, with twenty three to go. There was another caution. Earnhardt tried to get his lap back. Couldn't do it again. Jeff Burton. No one could pass Jeff Burton. I mean, they figured something out with this engine. I don't know what they did, but they figured out something that gave him just a little bit more down the straightaways than anybody else had that day. They, that, that team had it dialed in. So he was just the best car. But of course, because the restrictor plates, nobody really could get too far away. It was such a weird race, man. It, it's kind of a boring race, to be honest with you. But the, knowing all that backstory and that drama, it's kind of fun watching it now and realizing this is what was going on whenever you see Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Burton together on the track. You know kind of the history there, and it's it was dicey. If only we had Radioactive back in 2000. That would have been something cool to see and hear all the cuss words going from uh, Dale Sr.'s mouth about Jeff Burton and Jeff Burton, you know, when he passes him finally, you know, hey, yeah, like that. I think it'd be great if, if there was ever audio you could get from that. That would be something I would uh, pay a decent amount of money to hear, especially those legends of the sport like that. I'm not going to tell you it was the most amazing race you've ever seen, but the history of what was going on there and the passion that these guys had, it was, it was coming out a little bit on the racetrack. So Jeff Burton actually won this race under caution because there was a wreck. Sterling Marlin had a little spin out with three laps to go, and they pretty much couldn't get it cleaned up in time. And back then, there was no overtime. There was no green-white checker. They didn't do that. If the race was ending and there was a caution flag, well, it just ended under caution. But I don't think anybody would really argue with the result because Jeff Burton was clearly the winner and had the best car. This was the movement that started to spur the safety concerns in NASCAR to new levels. We all know what happened in February of 2001. And obviously lost the life of Dale Earnhardt in the Daytona 500. But that's not when they instituted the Hans device. Remember I told you that didn't happen until... until October. Yes, that happened after Blaze Alexander died in an ARCA race. And it was a similar type of deal where another bad accident. They did an investigation, NASCAR did, after Dale Earnhardt's wreck. And they concluded that they couldn't be sure if it was something that the Hans device could have saved. Or if it was because of a full face helmet that would have done it. Or... Did his seatbelts fail? That was one of the things that came out of that investigation where they said, well, he hit so hard, it might have been that his his seatbelts just failed. And then none of this would have helped anyway, right? If if your seatbelts fail, Hans device isn't going to work. But that allowed them to sit back and say, well, we're not going to mandate anything. There were still a lot of people who were resistant to it. When Blaze Alexander died, that was when they said, okay, clearly we can't ignore this anymore. 
and, and it was the next week that they said Hans devices, mandatory, full face helmets, mandatory, we're done. So those changes did occur, I think, in part because of the Adam Petty situation, the Kenny Irwin situation, and on down Tony Roper, Dale Earnhardt Sr., Blaze Alexander, et cetera. So what we saw in New Hampshire in September of 2000, that was the process unfolding, but it hadn't fully developed yet. So it was a, yeah. it was a weird time to be watching NASCAR, and it was a, a time of a lot of change. Obviously, a lot of drivers were not happy with it, but I think after what they saw the following year, I think they all realized it was time. And you're talking a few minutes ago about Blaze Alexander and the, how that happened. Carrie Earnhardt uh, wasn't the cause of it, but was involved he, in that He accident. flipped over Blaze Alexander's car, I yeah. believe, or ended up upside yeah. down, something to that, that effect. Yeah, and because of Kerry Earnhardt being across the finish, start finish line first, they red flagged the race and, and canceled the race after that. So Kerry Earnhardt won that race, that ARCA race. Um, Dale Earnhardt's son uh, yeah. won the race, and Blaze Alexander passed away, uh, sadly. And to the last race of the 2020 season, Jimmy Johnson had a sticker. So every chassis had a number, but that number started with BA for Blaze Alexander, his good friend. Hmm. And their left front bumper of every one of Jimmy Johnson's cars, because he always said, Blaze, you know, is going to win these championships before I do. And in a wow. sense that he would have him on the front of his car. So Blaze Alexander, another driver taken too soon in his prime. Uh, that who could have, I mean, we're, we're talking Jimmy Johnson raced around the time of this guy. So imagine a, a series where you had Kyle Petty, Kenny Irwin, a retired, uh, you know, maybe curmudgeon Dale Earnhardt Sr. still living. And you had Blaze Alexander. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people missing from this series that would have still been in cup that would have been up there with the Kurt Bushes and the Jimmy Johnsons and the Tony Stewart's had they had survived. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think you bring up an excellent point. Would NASCAR ultimately rather have a bunch of headaches with Dale Earnhardt Sr. throwing fits and yelling and Kenny Schrader and Mark Martin and all these older guys that were at the time, the guys who were kind of pushing back on this, Would they have rather dealt with all those individually and issued a couple discreet fines and had a couple press conferences where they had to hear from those guys, but have some of these drivers still around. Or yeah. is it better to do the way that it started, you know, where it took a lot of people dying before they finally said, okay, enough's enough. We can't do this. I mean, hell, Dale Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt died and they didn't do it yet, you know? Right. It took another accident involving another Earnhardt before they said, okay, now we get it. Fine. We're doing it. It's official now. NASCAR would have for sure preferred to have all those arguments and all those headaches and still have those drivers around to yell about it. That's why I think you see now, I think that also lends some, at least for me, it lends some understanding to sometimes NASCAR makes these decisions and they don't seem to really consult the drivers and the drivers all throw a fit and they go, why, why weren't we talked to? Why did they not ask us? And it's like, well, th this is what happened when they did used to ask, right? They, sometimes they would ask and the answers would go, well, I don't want to do it. And they would say, oh, okay, well, if he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. And they wouldn't do the things they probably knew they should. Now, sometimes they go too far the other way, I think. But I think it's instructive to realize this is what some of the NASCAR leadership went through that now that informs, I think, even some of the decisions they make today, even with non-safety stuff, just, you know, NASCAR is doing it this way because NASCAR said so. And yeah. <laughs> if you don't like it too bad, maybe that's part of what came out of this. They realized they acted too late here. We, we talk about drivers. Sometimes you do need that governing body or that leadership above them. Uh, you do want to have their input, but at the end of the day, too, 
if you asked every, well, maybe not every driver, but the majority of drivers on that paddock or that garage, if you said, hey, we're going to do something, it's going to give you an extra 20 horsepower, but it, it, it could decrease your safety by 10, 15%. They'd be like, oh, 20 horsepower, please give me that. I want that. Yeah, of course. But yeah, because they're going to want to win. So you need to make sure you check that because sometimes, I mean, just like parents with, if you give a kid the option of uh, a healthy, balanced meal or ice cream, they're going to choose ice cream most every time, most mm -hmm. every kid. Yeah. So you have to, you have to do what's best for in their best interest um, at the end of the day. So that's kind of what NASCAR has to do and these governing bodies have to do. Yeah. Not an easy job at all. So now we know more of the story about why NASCAR had to do something about safety. Um, it clearly was not just about Dale Earnhardt, although that definitely woke everyone up and moved them along much sooner than they otherwise would have. That's it for this week. Next week on the podcast, we'll learn about one of the biggest innovations that came out of that push for a safer NASCAR, and that is the car of tomorrow. As always, we thank each and every one of you who check out this podcast. Maybe you're new. We've got plenty of back episodes for you to go listen to. We will be talking IndyCar, sports cars, dirt tracks, F1. We love motorsports history. If you love motorsports history, you found your place. Make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter or Instagram or both at Stagger Podcast. We'll see you next week right here on Stagger.